politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight for our liberties anew to the one and only CR podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house here at Blaze Media on Thursday. And what is it, June 17th? I'm forgetting there's a lot of teenths here. Juneteenth. I guess every day is Juneteenth. What is it, the 19th now? Um, But... Today, I was thinking of taking off the day for a holiday because today is actually um, another Juneteenth, June 17th, the anniversary of the Battle of Bunker Hill, Bunker, Bunker Hill Day. And look, you know, that's really where those Minutemen ragtag forces showed their ability to at least stand up to the British military and eventually led to our freedoms. Why don't we celebrate Bunker Hill Day? Why don't we celebrate Yorktown Day? Why don't we celebrate D-Day, V-E Day, V-J Day, Okinawa, Iwo Jima, Jima, the other battles that would be more universal, I guess, yeah, more universal, more meaningful. But instead, we have every Republican but, what, 14 House members and zero senators we're willing to stand up to this assault on our culture. Oh, Daniel, do you support slavery? So they come up with this contrived holiday that nobody ever heard to, heard of. It's meaningless to anyone I know, black, white, or anything in between. In Texas, it officially was a holiday. It was very tenuous connection to anything. If you care about that, we already have Emancipation Day. But Republicans buy it Hook, line, and sinker. And typically I wouldn't focus so much on this. And we're going to move on to other things. But to me, this is emblematic of what the Republican Party is and what they do on every issue. The Republican Party is the dumbed-down version of the left. They are the kiddie table of the Democrat Party. And now they're going to push the special ed version of critical race theory. That's really what it is. They just take what the left does and they do it a little bit slower and less enthusiastically. This Me Too, you you could just hear these meetings with Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy in the hushed tones. Ooh, this is something that has racial overtures. We have to show that we're on board with this. This is emblematic of everything the Republican Party does. So we're going to unpack that today. Today's sponsor is AR500 Armor. Um, Folks, I would have never advertised this in years past, but I really do think in your zombie apocalypse gear that you buy, along with your provisions, preparing for our civil war, your guns, your ammo, your holsters, tactical gun belts, You need ballistic body armor now more than ever. It's in high demand. A lot of people, you know, it's kind of new for them. They're not sure what to get. Um, I go with AR-500 armor because they are very comfortable, lightweight. They have a lot of good options. Um, If you are outside carrying, you really should consider part of that personal defense is body armor. 
Um, AR-15 armor makes it easy, approachable, and affordable to people that aren't familiar with it. If you go to AR500armor.com, you could buy really an assortment of different options. They customize packages built for citizens just like you who are looking for varying levels of protection. Um, they make the shopping process very simple. And best of all, they put together, just for our listeners, a special, special package if you go to ar500armor.com slash Daniel. You can see their special promotions. Use the um, promo code Daniel to get 20% off anything else in the store. They have a lot of cool gear there. Um, very cool website to visit. So, again, protect yourself and your family um, with the body armor that I trust, ar500armor.com slash Daniel, offer code Daniel. Remember, the best time per to prepare was yesterday. The second best time is today. And, folks, the best time to have gotten rid of the Republican Party was yesterday. But it's not too late to do it today. You know, I always hear like, oh my gosh, Daniel, we can't split the vote. There is no third party. But there's a difference between obsequiously kissing the Republican Party's rear end versus starting with the point that really we should have a new party. Really, the Republican Party is the kiddie version of the Democrat Party. Really, every incumbent Republican from everything down to school board, county judge, county commissioner, up to senator, governor, congressman, is suspect as being a rhino until proven otherwise. And we need to push a new sort of person that you're just using the Republican Party for ballot access in the hopes that eventually we get a critical mass of these people starting in small enclaves and eventually a whole state and we start something new. See what I mean? That, that's a very different presentation I just gave to you in 60 seconds of what I mean by starting a new party that circumvents the straw man excuses for not pursuing this, really, the only, the only option we have. But here we have yesterday John Cornyn, the senator from Texas, obsessively pushing Juneteenth. He's been pushing that forever. And then there was this one very few you know, congressmen, one congressman, um... Matt Rosendale, he's a new congressman from Montana. He put out a statement opposing it. He said, let's call an ace an ace. This is an effort by the left to create a day out of whole cloth to celebrate identity politics as part of its larger efforts to make critical race theory the reigning ideology of our country, since I believe in treating everyone equally, regardless of race, and that we should be focused on what unites us rather than our differences. I will vote no. And Senator John Cornyn tweets at that kooky it's now kooky not to believe in the most extreme deracination of our culture that the cultural marxists and the democrat party are putting out that is the view of the senate minority whip the second ranking republican in the senate okay and what's so offensive about this is see they're trying to play a game where they're like, well, it has some ties to Texas of a day that they were free, that they realized that in Texas, some really crazy thing that it's like, dude, look, if you're a Texan and you're really into th that day and that meant something to you, God bless you. But to the 99.9% .9 of the rest of the people in the country, it's meaningless. Look, often we'll start off the day talking about this day in history, and there's many interesting facts that you could come across 
many very important days. Constitution Day, V-Day, D-Day, right? And we never made a holiday out of that, right? And certainly something that nobody ever heard of, you could find some random thing that's like, oh, well, Daniel, it's associated with emancipation. Do you support slavery? I'm not going to fall for that game. It's completely contrived. It has nothing to do with history because historically no one ever pushed it. It was pushed last year, an outcrop of BLM and George Floyd. So it's being pushed by a terrorist organization with a gutter, racist, anti-Semitic, anti-white ideology, and most importantly, neo-Marxist. And no, this is something we should oppose fully. You know, it would be the equivalent of a group of Jews, let's say, pushing a false narrative all of a sudden that America is an anti-Semitic country. America is terrible for Jews. America has done bad things to Jews. Just, just makes it up out of whole cloth. And then as part of that, suddenly I, I push to make Holocaust Remembrance Day called Yom HaShoah the, um, a national federal holiday. Well, you can't deny. Well, that's a very significant day, right? A lot more significance to Jewish persecution than Juneteenth Day is to even slavery because, again, you would go with Emancipation Day, the day Lincoln um, freed the slaves, by the way, in violation of the Supreme Court. That's really what we should champion, that, that Lincoln followed the law, the Constitution, morality, Declaration of Independence over judicial supremacy. But Juneteenth is meaningless. Meaningless. But but let's say I said, you know, you 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 deny the Holocaust if you don't support my effort to make something that is much more meaningful than Juneteenth a national holiday. Now, obviously, the answer to that is no, because I mean, you know, we have enough federal holidays. I mean, every day of the year you can find an important day, which I just mentioned on the show, from Yorktown to D Day to VE Day. But at the end of the day, you know, if it, it would be clear in my hypothetical that you're pushing it as a contrived narrative to promote a divisive false narrative. They're not suddenly celebrating, you know, 1860, uh, 1863. Okay, that's not what they're celebrating. They're celebrating 2021 destruction of America with that. And they're trying to use that as a hook. And all but 14 Republicans voted for it. And they actually, they added the name Independence Day, Juneteenth Independence Day, to really just take away from July 4th. In the scheme of things, this is nothing like the issues we're dealing with, but it's emblematic of everything because look at, look at COVID fascism. Name, name me the Republican that is opposing the premise of COVID fascism. Again, it's only the Republicans that are, you know, like us, that just use the party for ballot access. There's very few of them. Almost all of them, to this day, buy something. The most destructive issues that the left pushes, they buy it hook, line, and sinker. Name me the Republican fighting the left on criminal justice reform. Name me the Republicans fully fighting them on illegal immigration. Name me the Republicans fighting them on the homosexual agenda. Name me the Republicans fighting them on the concept of judicial supremacy. Whatever big issue you can come up with, Republicans essentially support the premise of the left. That's what this is.
So now we have a new Kwanzaa. Juneteenth is the new Kwanzaa. A completely contrived, racist, made-up bullcrap. And again, if you're going to tell me that it has some meaningful significance in Texas in some part of history, I understand that. But nobody else thinks of it that way. So that's not where it's coming from. That's complete nonsense. Utter nonsense. You know, at least if I were a Republican and I felt, oh my gosh, we are taking on so much water on this issue. We are getting crushed culturally on this. I mean, the people are like, give me Juneteenth Day or give me death. I would still fight to the extent, you know what I would do? I would pair it with Constitution Day and say, all right, that's fine. Let's make that a federal holiday. We're going to make Constitution Day September 17th, federal holiday. So people will know what that is. People will get be off of school, off of work. Get something for it. But no, nothing. And mind you, this is not a popular issue. Um, who was this? Ryan Gerdusky put this out on Twitter. A very astute point, I felt. Where he tweeted out a Gallup poll that basically nobody's ever heard of Juneteenth Day. And only 7% of Republican voters want it to become a holiday. And yet, 98% of Republicans support it. I mean, elected Republicans. And he noted that this is where culture is downstream from politics. Well, you know, people often say politics is downstream of culture. And I've always disagreed with that. It depends on the issue. But they really work concurrently. Culture is downstream of politics. Because sometimes the politics could direct people. The media and the political leaders could push something and it will be self-fulfilling and they'll make it popular and exciting out of nowhere. Which is a lesson that we could make our ideas and views and symbols and fads popular and exciting. But whoops, we don't have a political party to push that. This is where we are. This is where we are, folks. Juneteenth. The GOP now pushes the special ed version of critical race theory. Now, folks, as summer comes and you're on the move, you want to go jogging, even go out in your car for a long summer vacation, you want to listen to my shows, listen to music, listen to, uh, you know, something to take your eyes off the screens, you're going to need reliable but affordable wireless earbuds. Uh, Raycon is partnering with this show a sponsor this month, um, and they offer wireless earbuds that really will make all the difference. You get crisp, powerful beats, um, good sound quality. I love the feel the best because no earpiece ever seems to fit my ears, which is why people always complain that I'm fiddling with the earpiece on air. But um, Raycons, they look and feel great. Uh, they're built to go wherever you go. Um, again, you know, whether you're sweating on a treadmill, you know, the battery is going to be reliable. Um, they actually have a 24 hour battery life on them. So you could take them for, you know, if you want to go on a hike or a long trip, uh, they're offering 15% off of all their products online for my listeners. If you go to buy Raycon, that's B U Y R A Y C O N.com slash conservative get 15% off your entire order, grab a pair for yourself, grab a spare for a friend, 15% off at buyraycon.com slash conservative. That's buyraycon.com slash conservative. So folks, 
to move on, it's not just Juneteenth. Okay? If it were only that, I wouldn't be so upset. But it's every issue. Our favorite governor, Brad Chicken Little of Idaho, he's now bribing state employees to get the vaccine. So basically, on Wednesday, the Idaho governor announced that he's giving state employees funded by taxpayers four hours of paid leave if they take the jab. According to him, the safe and affected COVID-19 vaccine needs to, you know, he's upset that the, the vaccine rates are too low there. And, you know, I'm thinking, here we have a situation where every time we're up against the biggest dangers from the left, the most relevant, current, destructive, odious onslaught coming from the left, when we need the most, you know, intrepid, energetic, indefatigable response to combat that, we get complete perfidy from the, from, from the phony right, from Republicans. They downright support it. Even if you're personally going to get it. But I think we all agree that given that government is promoting it in a way that is A, coercive, and B, censoring informed consent, giving people the right information on it as more problems come to life with it. Here we have in the free state of Idaho the Republican governor pushing this garbage, bribing people. They're all like this. It's truly unbelievable. Truly disgusting. So this is where we are. He said the new benefit comes at no additional cost to Idaho taxpayers. I don't know what that means because four hours of paid leave is four hours of paid leave. But this is my point. Everywhere you turn, Republicans are screwing with us. Again, this is why we need, absolutely need, to get involved in the primaries. We have Janice McGee and the lieutenant governor running against him. Um, I cannot encourage you enough to go to her website. I, I Again, I'm forgetting what it is, but just Google Janice McGeehan for Idaho governor. She is someone who needs our help. I, I, I endorse her fully. Um, she, she's one of the few who fought COVID fascism as lieutenant governor against the governor of her own party. From day one, she held rallies, burning copies of his orders, as well as masks. She got in there for a day while he was out and tried to overturn the mandate. Why am I alone in doing this? A sane conservative movement would conduct an audit of every elected Republican in a red area, again, from county up to state to federal level, and audit, are they with us? Pick the top seven issues of our time. Are they a warrior advancing our cause? Are they kind of neutral? Or are they downright with the other side? And you will find that on almost every issue, almost all of them in most places are with the other side. It's certainly not helpful. This is the movement I'm trying to create 
at a local level to focus on your respective officials. And I want to take this discussion to something very specific. I mentioned it yesterday, but it's worth repeating today just to demonstrate the COVID fascism insanity, how it's percolating among elected Republicans, how it's destroying our lives, how it ties into jailbreak, and it's occurring even in Trump plus 54 counties. So there is a district court judge in Polk County, Texas. This is a county that Trump carried by, I believe it was 76 to 22. Eastern Texas. And this is, you know, the district judges, they're, 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 they're all elected. And by the way, I know in Texas they call the, what, what we call here a county executive. Or some, sometimes they call it a county manager. They call it there a county judge. That's not what I'm referring to. That's an executive position. This is a judicial branch position, but it is elected. He believes that if you rape someone's child, you get just 180 days in jail. But if you want to see your own child after divorcing your wife and you have a custody battle, you're not allowed to see your children unless you get the experimental gene therapy sold to us as a vaccine. Tomorrow we're going to have on um, Care IV TV reporter Ivory Hecker. She's the one who was fired after she uh, basically on air reported that the local Fox station that she worked at was censoring stories on hydroxychloroquine and other things that they felt were, you know, racist or whatever. So she'll be on to talk about that tomorrow, but she actually reported on some good crime stories there. And one of them was basically, there was this guy, Eli Binion, child rapist, raped a 14-year-old girl in Polk County. Okay, and this wasn't like, you know, one of these deals where it was like kind of statutory rape. It was consensual, but you know, 14-year-old girl. No, no, no. He grabbed her in a hotel room and just threw her on her bed and, you know, full-blown thing. Like, this is the type of thing, in my view, that should get the death penalty or life without parole. Even then, prosecutors were only asking for 15 years. This dirtbag judge, Travis Kitchen, gave him just... 15, 180 days. He'll, he'll be out in about 100 days. Um, and, but, but here's the deal. While he was serving in jail after initially being arrested for this, he attacked someone and broke their jaw in jail. So, like, you can't say good behavior or whatever. And still, still, he was, um, and he, so Binion gave him a three-year sentence, or Kitchens gave him a three-year sentence for that assault. Um, but he was there since 2018, so he's going to be out soon. So he only got an additional 180 days for the rape. This is what we have. Polk County, remember, is an area where th- there are no Democrats. So he ran, it's, it's the Republican primary that matters, and he ran as a Republican in the primary, and he won. No one would have known. No one would have known the difference. Now, hold that thought for a minute. Last month, um, the same judge, Kitchens, orders this man, Chris Staley, who's a father of four, going through a divorce, to get vaccinated 
before he's able to see his children. He has four children, ages 6 through 11. Okay? Think about that. He's asserting that you're going to be harmful to your children, as if he is a danger to his kids if he doesn't get vaccinated, when, mind you, he's more likely to be a risk to his kids, spreading them every other pathogen than this. But these judges just seize power for themselves. They think they're God. They think they are God. And folks, you might say, well, didn't Greg Abbott say, forget about, I mean, private businesses, but this is a government official can't mandate vaccines. Well, they're doing it anyway. See, this is why we have to follow up. It's just like with Houston Methodist Hospital. Forcing 117 people to get vaccinated. So the point is, A, we have a bunch of Republicans that are part of the problem. And then the ones that get primaried, like Abbott, they say our stuff broadly that they're going to do it. But then they don't follow through with it. This is what we need our Liberty Strike Force teams. Again, you can sign up at ConstitutionAction.com to join your local focused pressure group. That's what we're going to do on all this stuff, work both on the policy, but also on the electoral stuff. And we need to do an audit. We need to do an audit of every single elected Republican. If you're in a red county or state, you need to do an audit of every single Republican. Every Republican. And just understand that you need to know where they stand. So if it's a county prosecutor, a county judge, county sheriff, where do they stand on crime? Do they subscribe to criminal justice reform? You should always Google them and the term criminal justice reform. And if they use that language, you know exactly where they're coming from. We don't. You have no idea. You know, I start off with the examples of, of you know, John Cornyn. I could have given 100 others on Juneteenth. Um, Brad Little on COVID fascism. But they're not the exceptions. They're the rule. It's true of almost every elected Republican, unless you see or know otherwise that they're notorious for standing up, like the Florida governor, which everyone keeps coming back to because there are too few examples of people like that. You know they're a dirtbag, and you know they need to be primaried. Anything short of that is ridiculous. So that's what we need to do. The Republicans agree with the left on the fundamental issues of our time. What was the most fundamental issue of the last number of years? You know, the, the last decade. Healthcare, Obamacare, the complete takeover of healthcare, which as I warned, if those of you who are new to the show, you didn't, you know, hear me back then, we did tons of shows on healthcare. And American healthcare is not socialism. It's worse. It's venture socialism. It's this perfect mix of government-sponsored entities, aka pseudo-private, but they're not because they're propped up through market distortions, government subsidies, interventions, uh, regulatory scheme that boxes out competition. So it's created this insurance cartel, this corporate practice of medicine, and now we're seeing it on the privacy side, on the fascism side, not just the cost and the convoluted way of paying for it that we typically talk about. Now we're seeing the actual care, the the censorship of treatment, the, the fascism, I mean, COVID has taught us that, but I was warning about that throughout the Obamacare debate. Republicans supported the entire thing. You know, people are talking about today, just an hour ago, 
Um, the Supreme Court came out with some important decisions that, you know, maybe if we have time, we'll talk about. And one of them, obviously, is they dismissed the lawsuit against the individual mandate. And I'll, I'll, I, I want to delve into that in a, in a minute, just the legalities. A lot of people are asking me what I think of the opinion um, and what it means. But more broadly, the, the, the main point is forget about the court. Why didn't Republicans get rid of it when they had the trifecta? But the answer is because if you remember all my shows at the time, the Republicans supported the premise behind it. They picked one tiny avenue of Obamacare that they didn't like, which was the individual mandate, which constitutionally is a problem. But as a matter of policy, it was not the most offensive part of it. It was making insurance insolvent is what it was and the putting everyone on Medicaid and all that stuff. And they didn't want to touch it. The GOP loves Obamacare. Now, with that, I want to get to the actual court ruling. I want to discuss that, um, you know, the power of courts, courts being tyrants, and what, what is the role of a court, and the lessons we can take out from, you know, this ruling. So not surprisingly, as I warned at the time, the judges were never going to bite at this ruling. Um, and it was kind of a funny marriage here. It was seven to two. Um, Thomas Kavanaugh and Barrett were with the left, but I agree with their ruling. Um, and Alito and Gorsuch dissented. Now, again, the ruling wasn't on whether you like Obamacare. The ruling wasn't on whether you think it's constitutional for the government to get involved in healthcare because that was never really brought up or whether a government can make insurance actuarially insolvent and um, make it that states cannot have insurance that's actuarially sound without guaranteed issue and community rating, um, the you know Medicaid scheme. None of that was a part of it. The lawsuit was that the individual mandate is unconstitu- unconstitutional. Now, you might say, well, Daniel, it is unconstitutional. You can't force someone to purchase a private product. Absolutely. The problem was, as I always said, it's an issue of standing. Um, Courts don't rule on... Courts don't have a veto power to strike down a law. Now, that's my opinion. Under current practice, that's what they do. So I agree with Alito and Gorsuch's dissent in the, to, the, to the extent that if that is the system we're going to abide by, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, and heck, we'll strike down Obamacare. But just so you know, so you don't think like Thomas has gone bad on us, there, th- Thomas is just being consistent that like, what do you want from me? There's no standing. So basically what happened was this. Um, the state of Texas, the Solicitor General, and joined by other red states, they put together an argument that's too clever by half, um, where they basically said, all right, well, as much as we disagree with it, Robert said in NFIB v. Sebelius that the only way you could justify the constitutionality of an individual mandate is to make it a tax, not a, a mandate, a regulation, but a tax. So what happened was during the Trump tax cuts in that bill, there was a provision zeroing out the fine for not purchasing insurance. So essentially, you have officially a mandate on the books, but the tax is zeroed out. So they said, well, wait a minute. 
you can no longer call it a tax because the tax is zeroed out. So therefore, now we're back to square one. It's a mandate, and it's now everyone should agree that it's unconstitutional. Then they wanted to say, oh, and once the individual mandate's unconstitutional, it's unseverable from the rest of the thing. So we strike down the rest of the thing. That that was essentially their argument. But the problem with that is that because it's zeroed out, that means there's no grievance. There's no valid injury in fact, right? So I come to a court. They're making me purchase a jorts. Okay, so don't purchase it. What, what sort of relief do you want from the court? Okay, so we're telling you, you don't have to purchase it. You don't have to purchase it. Nothing's going to happen to you. But, but, but it's written on the books. Well, what do you want us to do? Rip it out? That, that's not what courts do. So there's no injury. So there's no standing. There's nothing. I mean, there's no case. So Alito wanted to buy the argument that, oh, no, but the other parts of Obamacare are relevant. Well, but what do you mean? But you're suing from the individual mandate, and on that you have no standing. Well, we do because if we could strike that down, then it tips down the other stuff, and that will give us relief from the other stuff. Okay, so then, I mean, sue against the other stuff and show how that's unconstitutional, which I believe it is. But that wasn't their argument. And the point is, both standing against an injury that's not really an injury and the severability arguments presuppose the fact that a court is a veto power. A court doesn't rule, oh, once this is struck down, then that's struck down. No, ask me what you want relief from. A court doesn't rule something's unconstitutional as an end to itself. A court gives relief to a plaintiff. Look, I shouldn't have to do that. Here's my argument. A court's allowed to say you're right, even if either because they're not applying statute properly, or they could even say statute is unconstitutional. But it doesn't strike it down. And, and we've talked about this many times. The other branches have a right to fight back, and if they believe the courts have it wrong, they have a duty to fight back using their powers to say, no, we believe it is constitutional, and we're going to enforce the way we think. But a plaintiff has the right to go to a court. In an ideal world, I do believe I agree with Thomas. I think where, you know, Alito and Gorsuch are right in some sense is that, yes, but this is the sandbox that these leftist judges have been playing in. And by the way, this is why the courts are always going to be a one-way street for us. Always going to be a one-way street and a dead end. Because all these leftist judges that agreed with Thomas... And they're like, yeah, there's no standing. Show me the injury. Severability. But now they never touched on severability because they said there's no standing. So they didn't even touch on that. But the point is, they believe in that for when, when it suits them. I mean, all these times when they could like have this third party organization sue against a law in the abstract that they don't like, even though there's no valid injury. Let, let me give you an example. All the establishment clause cases, like... Tenth Amendment, uh, not uh, Ten Commandments. Like, let's say you have a Ten Commandments replica, and they sue. And they're like, well, what's your injury? Mine eyes, mine eyes. I can't look at it. It hurts me. <laughs> like, what does it do to you? There's no valid injury. Meaning, even if it somehow would violate the Establishment Clause, which it doesn't, still, wh who says you could sue? I mean, it might be unconstitutional, but you, courts don't rule on that in the abstract, or shouldn't. Where is your injury? Show it to me. But nonetheless, they accept that all the time. You have all the time with the photo ID. Show me the injury. Show me someone who is entitled to vote 
that couldn't get a photo ID. Because remember, in all those states that require it, they mail you one if, you don't, if, if you're one of the weird people that don't have it. Mind you, for so many other public and private benefits, you need one, but somehow you don't have it for voting. Oh, no, no, you can't do that. Well, show me the injury. It's never a problem when it suits them. Somehow, suddenly they agree with us in this limited purview of a case and a controversy to just adjudicate a limited case and controversy with valid, ripe injury in fact. <laughs> like, that's that's bull. And I think that's what's kind of bothering Alito. Like, come on, give me a break. Like, you want to go back that fine. So I'm not, I could see it both ways. Ideally, I believe in, in Thomas. But yeah, I mean, if you're going to play these games, then screw it. We'll strike down Obamacare. Because, mind you, they apply it to garbage all the time that is legitimate state laws they strike down based on not valid standing. So certainly, I mean, we do agree the mandate is 100% unconstitutional. You can say there's no, no injury, but whatever. So that's my broad view on that. But broadly speaking, my point is this. That the courts never seem to be there for us. And we saw this with COVID fascism. Might be changing a little bit now, as we talked about earlier this week. But we saw it all year. That this notion of a court is a broad, just declaring unconstitutional judicial supremacism. That they have the right to broadly rule on things. And and, and more importantly, be the sole and final arbiter of that interpretation of the Constitution. And, and, and application of it. And it's... You know, you somehow universally binding and self-executing. It never benefits us. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. So I think we may as well just go in the Thomas view and just make it very limited because we're going to need it. We talked about that a little bit yesterday with uh, Texas gubernatorial candidate Don Huffines about, you know, if he were to do things as governor and the courts go after him. The courts are going to be the biggest obstacle for us in our red state project if we want to go our own separate ways. So I think we need to get into the habit of saying of, of this more limited role. I've said it all the time. Now, again, it doesn't, I'm not saying if you're a plaintiff and you're being forced to wear a mask and you have a legitimate individualized grievance that absolutely is a constitutional right, look, you know, fight with whatever branch you could have. I never said that the courts don't have the right to when there's valid standing and a valid constitutional violation to rule in their favor. What I just say is there's a difference between judicial review and judicial supremacy. The notion that it's universally binding on other branches of government and self-executing on non-plaintiffs and that they have the final say in it is not true. So that is my view on the Obamacare ruling um, but but again, you know, it's interesting. Everyone does agree that the individual mandate is unconstitutional, right? Let, let's put aside this standing. In other words, let's say, you know, if, um, I don't know, somehow they had, what they moved away from the tax business, which is stupid, and they blatantly called it a fine, which it really is, and they had the fine. Everyone agrees that the court would say it's unconstitutional, that a government cannot coerce an individual to take a positive action to engage in commerce. In other words, you can't regulate a human being's inactivity. How the hell are we able to go on with this notion that government could 
regulate the inactivity of breathing, of existence in locomotion of a human being, unless you take an act, an action against your body, not your pocketbook to purchase something on the marketplace, but this is against your, your only breathing orifices. So again, this is the inconsistency of the courts. And, and look, I sympathize with where Alito is coming from. Like, Alito is basically like, look, you always find ways to get out of it. He, he ends off by saying, no one can fail to be impressed by the lengths to which this court has been willing to go to defend the ACA against all threats. A penalty is a tax. The United States is a state, right? That's the Burwell case. And 18 states who bear costly burdens under the ACA can, cannot even get a foot in the door to raise a constitutional challenge. So a tax that does not tax is allowed to stand and support one of the biggest government programs in our nation's history, fans of judicial inventiveness will applaud once again, but I must respectfully dissent. Um, and, and again, I, I sympathize with him, and, and his point being is that the left always seems to win, which is why I would rather just go in the direction of, rather than hoping to somehow strike down their stuff, which never works, is just to say, all right, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. We're not going to abide by your stuff when we have our hardcore legislation at a state level and the federal courts come knocking. So... I'm fine with heading in that direction. But again, let's not forget that the reason why we are in this position with Obamacare is because Republicans fundamentally agree with the construct of health care that the Democrats have. And that's because the Republicans fundamentally agree with what Democrats are pushing at any given time. The only things they disagree on are like abstract things that aren't in front of us at this point. They either yesterday's fights that are no longer in contention or tomorrow's speculative fight that once it actually becomes real down the road, then they'll wind up giving in anyway. There was also another important decision um, on the Philadelphia case where the city of Philadelphia um, cut out Catholic adoption agencies um, from – uh, be, be partnering with the city because uh, they don't um, give the children over to two men or two females that claim to be married and actually want to give a kid a chance in a normal home. So, you know, it was actually unanimous opinion remanding it back um, that it, it is discriminatory, it does violate the First Amendment. But again, I'm not going to, I don't have time to get into the details, but if you look at the concurrence of Gorsuch and Alito, or or was it Thomas? I forget who signed on and who wrote it, but Thomas Gorsuch and Alito had their own concurrences. It was much broader than what Kavanaugh and Barrett were doing. And and, and again, you're seeing this. You know, Gorsuch has his own problems on other issues, but generally we're starting to see this where Barrett and Kavanaugh on many things are really a step below um, the others. And and again, that, that that's a very big problem. And I, I suspect we're going to really be hurt by that in the future. So that is with the court stuff. So I was planning on getting to some other things today, but I figure now that we're talking about the courts and the dangerous power of judges um, and how we should view it, I do think... It's worth just introducing one other point that I wrote about. Not a lot of people have been talking about, but this is becoming very dangerous. Um, you know, again, I'm not a big fan of anything in our system of government. All branches are dangerous. Our whole system has become corrupt. 
But the worst thing you can do is place power in the hands of unelected judges. Now, that first judge we talked about in the Texas county, all the county judges are elected, and that's why we really need to focus on them. But certainly when you talk about federal judges, I mean, there's no recourse. There's literally no recourse. And we're seeing this growing trend of judges forcing their will on people to get vaccinated. We saw it with the, with the masking. You have a right to go to court, and, and, and they're restraining you. In order to go to court, you have to wear a mask. And to this day, they're doing it, even if you are vaccinated, by the way. There's this subhuman dirtbag judge in South Dakota. And by the way, for some reason, South Dakota has only bad judges at a federal level. So, you know, this notion that somehow Trump remade the courts, I mean, you know, it's, it's just not true. The courts are horrible in most places. So this guy, District Judge Charles Cornman of South Dakota, he went after the U.S. Marshals. And I'm bringing this in both to warn about the severity of COVID fascism embedded in, in, in these judges um, and, and in courts and, and really harming people that want to go to court or, or divorce court and they can't see their kids if they don't get vaccinated. I mean, the, 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 the civil rights violations. But also, I want to bring out a very important lesson to our, our earlier discussion about the role of the courts, the power of the courts relative to that of the other branches of government and what our framers had in mind with judicial power. So what happened was this guy is, um, you know, in court one day, May 10th, and he randomly asked a deputy marshal, I think it was a female. So the marshals are the people that protect the federal courts. The U.S. Marshals, it's run by the Justice Department. It's like the federal police force, right? They deal with federal criminals, arrests, fugitives, um, and then they protect the federal judiciary. They have a few different jobs. And the federal marshals, so she was asked, are you vaccinated? And that's like, I mean, that's extremely private. What right do you have to ask? I mean, could I go and ask the judge, do you have herpes? Do you have AIDS? Do you have HIV? Do you have syphilis? Were you with your wife in bed last night? I mean, you can't ask that. So she refused to answer. He told her to get out of his court. So I think the marshals got pissed off, and all of them, including you know the whole you know the chief of staff of the marshals and whatever, they they left. They just and and they refused to bring in plaintiffs, the defendants to the court that day. So this past Monday, the Washington Post had an article on this. Cornman just started yelling from the bench, and he charged the marshals with kidnapping the defendants. He charged them with like contempt and criminal conspiracy to obstruct justice. He charged three three uh, marshals. The chief of staff, John Killigalon, um, the U.S. marshal from South Dakota, Daniel Mosteller, and then Stephen Hoftelling, who's the chief deputy of that district. And he wrote a letter, because already last month he wrote a letter that, you know, saying that everyone needs to be vaccinated and I need to know. You can't come into my chambers. These judges think that they can control everything. 
and he asked the South Dakota U.S. attorney to prosecute them. Now, obviously, this guy's a dirtbag, you know, the COVID fascism we're seeing, but I want to freeze frame and point out a very important thing about the mechanics of the judiciary relative to other branches. We had this under Trump. A judge would rule um, every, I don't know, Somalis have a right to immigrate. Anyone has the right to crash a border and Trump can't do anything about it. And everyone was like, Daniel, what do you do? The court ruled. I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? Federalist 78, Hamilton famously said, courts have neither, judges have neither force nor will. And they ultimately depend upon the aid of the executive arm, even for the efficacy of its judgments. And what it means is that you might think, oh, he, he's the judge. He controls the U.S. Marshals. That's his police force. He could send them out. Now, practically, it often appears that way because they're, they defer to the judicial branch and they service them. They protect them. And based on their orders, they'll follow them. But legally, constitutionally, that is not how it works. The U.S. Marshals are a branch of the executive branch. The federal prosecutors, same thing. They, they're U.S. Justice Department. The courts, the, the, the federal judicial branch has neither a prosecutor nor a police force. It's a fat ass on the bench with a robe that's a psychopath who could rant and write. He has no power. That's exactly what he meant. The U.S. Marshals could say, screw you, we're not leaving the court. Or conversely, they could say, we're not protecting you. Get lost. I'm charging you. <laughs> they could laugh in his face. They are, they are the police force. Do what to us? If Biden and Merrick Garland had any shred of intellectual honesty to defend their own people. They would stand up to this guy, and you know what? Congress should impeach this, this fag judge, fake judge. So people need to understand, this is what I always said, oh my gosh, the court ruled that a man's a woman. What are we going to do? That you have to allow a tranny in a, in a female bathroom in school. Well, what if the superintendent of the school doesn't do it? Well, the judge said. Well, he'll issue a bench warrant. Who executes that bench warrant? Does the judge get his fat rear end off the bench and, and do it himself? No. He calls upon the marshals. The marshals are run by the executive branch. That is not a bug of the system. That is a feature. Well, you think like they, it was an oversight? They didn't give them a police force? That's what Hamilton wrote in Federalist 78. They, they rely upon the persuasiveness of their opinion. But if their opinion is crap and it's garbage and the stuff they're saying is lunacy, it's the responsibility and an easy ability and power of the executive branch to say, no, we're not doing it. And Congress, which has the power of the purse and to write statutes, controls the statutory structure of the U.S. Marshals and could prohibit them, prohibit funding for doing certain things. Congress could write a law tomorrow or the executive branch could write a policy saying the marshals are not allowed to wear a mask or be vaccinated. <laughs> or certainly that they don't have to be. And there's nothing that judge could do about it. He can't kick them out of the court. He can't do that. Do you know who's responsible for processing an order committing a person for civil contempt? 
which is what the judge is lodging against them, the U.S. Marshals. So they could just say, hey, tough luck, buddy. We're not enforcing it against ourselves. He doesn't have his own police force. And again, it's by design. The executive branch has a police force and Congress controls it because the president and Congress are elected. Federal judges are not and they're life tenured. So they didn't want to give them that much power. Did you know that the U.S. Marshals are one of the most legitimate branches of the federal government? The FBI is garbage. That was invented later. All these alphabet soups. But everyone agreed the federal government did need some sort of police force for the limited constitutional enforcement it has. That was the U.S. Marshals. The same act of Congress, the Judiciary Act of 1789, that created the entire federal judiciary. Yes, it was created by an act of Congress, believe it or not. Constitutionally, all you need is something called the Supreme Court with someone called the Chief Justice of the United States sitting at a card table with some jurisdiction over four enumerated issues spelled out in Article 3, Section 1. Dealing with ambassadors and interstate conflicts. Other than that, everything else is subject to Congress's design. The same Judiciary Act that created the Judicial Branch created the U.S. Marshals. <laughs> they are co-equal and independent. And when it comes to the, the power of anything, it's not... I mean, so, so again, all I'm trying to say is the same way we all agree that if the political branches, the executive branch gets tyrannical and shoves a mask on us, shoves COVID fascism, I have the right as a plaintiff to go to a court and get a ruling that I don't have to do that. Likewise, it goes in a circle because otherwise there's no checks and balances in co-equal branches if the judiciary does something tyrannical. I'm going to lock up a U.S. Marshal for not being vaccinated, for not wearing a mask. Um, I'm going to lock up Kim Davis for not issuing a marriage license to something that's not a marriage and is against Kentucky state law, which the Supreme Court said two years prior in Windsor is fully in the purview of, of state law. Marriage, that is. So they're not self-executing their opinions. Now, a court has more power to apply precedent within their rulings, within whatever they do. To give a criminal conviction or something. Civil cases, to issue judgment. But if they want to go and lock up people and enforce something against people when the other branches don't want to and believe it's unconstitutional, whether it's a federal branch or a state branch, they have the right and obligation and responsibility to interpret the Constitution as they, as they see fit. I mean, I've been, I've been explaining this to you since I started my first show, since I've been writing about this over, over the past decade, and, and since I wrote my book, Stolen Sovereignty. But the important thing is, I just wanted to give over this case because it demonstrates the mechanics of how that works. A lot of people don't realize they think the courts are going to come after you. They, they, they practically do because the executive branch's U.S. Marshals will follow what they say. But it doesn't have to be that way. The attorney general, if they see there's a problem with what the judge is doing, they'll issue an order to the marshals to do something different, and that judge has no power. So this, this is the direction we need to be going in as a country. So we're going to get back to some of the other news. Tomorrow I'm going to have Ivory Hecker on, that re reporter from 
Fox Houston that was fired. That's a whistleblower. We're going to talk about different things that are being censored in the media, crime stories in particular. But I just want to end by going back to what we began with, with this Juneteenth nonsense. It is inherently racist to patronize a group of people. Oh, you guys are so in need of being mollycoddled, and I'm going to obsessively promote stuff that we would never think of just because I want to show I'm mollycoddling you. Is that doing people favors? Is that honoring people? Is that treating people as equal? No, it's not. No, it's not. That's what this garbage is. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. It presupposes a premise that somehow blacks are being oppressed nowadays when it's just wrong. Oh, well, Daniel, in the 1800s, well, this is not the 1800s. That has long been dealt with, and it's been rectified, and we had everything, and now it's moved back the other way. I challenge anyone to show me where in culture, economy, law, and politics Whites are not discriminating against more than blacks. And, that, and, and I, I challenge you, that's before the revolution of last May with Floyd and BLM, where it, it, this was broken out into the open. And it's just openly discriminating, where literally, you know, uh, Biden created a special laws, just only black business owners could are entitled to this. You know, and, and, and there, at least, the court did rule it's unconstitutional. But, um, you know, this has been going on my entire life. For every one case where you could find someone private or public that discriminates against blacks, I'll show you 5,000 the other way around. So the notion that this is a problem that needs to be, like, addressed, no, it's not true. It's time we actually cut the garbage out and treat everyone equally. Is that too much to ask from the Republican Party? Evidently, it is. We need to find a way to rectify that. And that begins by pressuring them 365 days a week with our constitutionaction.com groups, as well as getting involved in the primaries. We're going to be working on that in the coming days. Send me your comments, questions, and concerns. dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. My other email is danielhorowitz at startmail.com. Um, is a newer email. You can follow me at armconservative on Twitter. Give this show a five-star rating at iTunes if you are able to do that. As well, if you listen through iTunes, send it to 50 of your friends and relatives. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.